Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, July 8th, 2022, the 534th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening on the day of the podcast release. If you are, that means you are a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. That is the only way to hear the episodes on the day of their release. If you are listening on another platform a day and a half later, the solution, if you want to hear it on time, is to sign up at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can get a paid subscription for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month comes out to less than a quarter an episode. So, so much has happened since I posted the episode yesterday that I'm going to try to move quickly today. And the biggest story is undoubtedly the assassination of former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. And I will get to that, but I want to spend a lot of time on that. So I want to get through the other stuff quickly. So let's start in America and then we will go international. A headline from the Associated Press today, Wisconsin Supreme Court 
disallows absentee ballot drop boxes. Wisconsin's conservative-controlled Supreme Court ruled Friday that absentee ballot drop boxes may be placed only in election offices and that no one other than the voter can return a ballot in person, dealing a defeat to Democrats who said the decision would make it harder to vote in the battleground state. No, it won't. No one needs drop boxes. If you have a mail-in ballot, that means you have mail. That means you can mail your ballot back through the mail. You don't need a drop box. There is nothing about drop boxes that makes voting easier. It only makes fraud easier. And that's what we saw in 2000 mules and a million other times in the last two years. However, the court didn't address whether anyone other than the voter can return his or her own ballot by mail. That means that anyone could still collect multiple ballots for voters and instead of using a drop box, put them in the mail. And that's true, Associated Press. Thank you for pointing that out. It seems, though, like you're implying that people go around collecting ballots and dropping them in drop boxes. So you have accepted the primary factual claim of 2000 mules. Well, that is wonderful news. Republicans have argued that practice known as ballot harvesting is ripe with fraud. You know, there is a difference between the words ripe and rife. Okay, rife with fraud is the proper phrase. Ripe with fraud doesn't mean anything. The system is ripe for fraud, but the system is not ripe with fraud. It is rife with fraud. Kind of wish people would stop saying that. Although there has been no evidence of that happening in Wisconsin, no evidence of ballot harvesting in Wisconsin, according to the Associated Press. Democrats and others argue that many voters, particularly the elderly and disabled, have difficulty returning their ballots without the assistance of others. Well, that's possible. It is possible that the elderly and disabled cannot return their ballots without the assistance of others. But if that is possible, they can also not receive their ballot without assistance of others. If they can't get to the mailbox, then someone else has to get to the mailbox. It works that way for both directions of sending the ballot. They always pretend that's not how it works, but that is how it works. Supporters argue drop boxes are a better option than mailing ballots because they go directly to the clerks and can't be lost or delayed in transit. That is their excuse for wanting drop boxes. They actually are trying to claim that drop boxes are are a more secure and reliable system than the U.S. Postal Service. Now, there are all sorts of laws about committing fraud through the Postal Service. There are basically no laws about committing fraud through ballot drop boxes. And that's why they do it so brazenly. There is absolutely no world in which ballot drop boxes ensure a more secure and reliable election outcome than mailing the ballot. That is nonsense. The decision sets absentee ballot rules for the August 9th primary and the fall election. Republican U.S. Senator Ron Johnson and Democratic Governor Tony Evers are seeking re-election in key races. Johnson and other Republicans hailed it as a win for voter integrity. This decision is a big step in the right direction, Johnson said. Wisconsin Democratic Party Chairman Ben Wickler said the ruling will make it more difficult for people to vote. It's a slap in the face of democracy itself, he said. 
The court's 4-3 ruling also has critical implications in the 2024 presidential race in which Wisconsin will again be among a handful of battleground states. President Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump in 2020 by just under 21,000 votes, four years after Trump narrowly won the state by a similar margin. And the article goes on. There's a lot of fluff in it, but skipping down a few paragraphs, the court said absentee ballots can be returned only to the clerk's office or a designated alternative site, but that site cannot be an unstaffed drop box. The bipartisan Wisconsin Elections Commission had told local election officials the boxes can be placed at multiple locations and that ballots can be returned by people other than the voter, but put that on hold pending the Supreme Court's ruling. So the Wisconsin Election Commission may be bipartisan, according to the little D next to the name and the little R next to the name, but the Wisconsin Election Commission is entirely complicit with the election theft in Wisconsin in 2020. They are not representing both sides. The attorney who writes under the name, the alias Technofog, released some screenshots of the court decision as he went through it. Here are some highlights. We hold the documents are invalid because ballot drop boxes are illegal under Wisconsin statutes. An absentee ballot must be returned by mail or the voter must personally deliver it. He goes on speaking of a directive that I believe comes from the Wisconsin Election Commission itself in memos to the municipal clerks around the state. Municipal clerks acted on these memos. Administrator Wolf averse she is aware of 528 ballot drop boxes utilized for the fall 2020 election. By the spring 2021 election, Administrator Wolf says municipal clerks and local election officials reported 570 drop boxes, spanning 66 of Wisconsin's 72 counties. And isn't it amazing that they claim the absence of drop boxes makes it more difficult to vote? They are defending the drop box system that is not in all the Wisconsin counties. So what is their position on that? Why is it okay to let some counties make it difficult to vote, but other counties, oh, they make it so easy with the drop boxes? Well, that has to do with the money that Mark Zuckerberg directed through the Center for Tech and Civic Life. They distributed that around the country, primarily to places that they knew they could get a large blue vote out of. When there was a complaint that they were favoring Democratic areas, then they spread the money around a little bit. But the bulk of the 400 plus million dollars that Mark Zuckerberg spent to rig the 2020 election was directed toward Democratic areas. So they're already defeating their own principles. Not that these are actually their principles. I just mean their stated principles. The last shot he shared. The record indicates hundreds of ballot drop boxes have been set up in past elections prompted by the memos and thousands of votes have been cast via this unlawful method, thereby directly harming the Wisconsin voters. The illegality of these drop boxes weakens the people's faith that the election produced an outcome reflective of their will. The Wisconsin voters and all lawful voters are injured when the institution charged with administering Wisconsin elections does not follow the law. And Captain Seth Keschel dropped some analysis on this. Keschel is an Army intelligence veteran who has been doing work on the trends in voter registration and 
how you can derive the expected overvote due to fraud in states and localities all around the country. He's been going at all of this hard since day one. He wrote, Wisconsin now favors the GOP for the foreseeable future. If this stays, this probably cuts 150,000 votes off the fraud. And Seth Keschel is highly accurate. 150,000 votes of fraud just delivered through the drop boxes. That is what they expect. This also creates excellent legal precedent to challenge drop boxes in all states. This is why we don't quit. Someone saw this lawsuit through. Removal of drop boxes greatly cripples ballot harvesting. Also on election news, the Maricopa County Republican Committee voted to approve a resolution that reads as follows. Be it resolved by the executive board of the Maricopa County Republican Committee. Whereas in solidarity with the Republican Party of Texas and their recent resolution on the 2020 election, whereas we believe the 2020 election violated Article 1 and 2 of the U.S. Constitution, that various secretaries of state illegally circumvented their state legislatures in conducting their elections in multiple incorrect ways, including allowing ballots to be received after November 3rd, 2020, whereas the 2000 Mules documentary irrefutably proves election fraud occurred in Maricopa County during the 2020 election in the form of ballot trafficking through drop boxes. Whereas we believe that substantial election fraud in key metropolitan areas significantly affected the results in five key states in favor of Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. Whereas the Arizona Senate audit of the 2020 election found significant inconsistencies and discrepancies. Now, therefore, we reject the certified results of the 2020 presidential election, and we hold that acting President Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. was not legitimately elected by the people of the United States. We strongly urge all Republicans to work to ensure election integrity and correct all fraud and weaknesses identified in the 2020 election. And so, no, the Maricopa County Republican Committee does not have the power, legal or otherwise, to overturn the 2020 election. That's not the point. The point is, this is an official statement now, and it represents part of a trend. And that trend is toward the Republican Party taking the official position that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. That is not some small thing. And of course, I know all of it takes too long. I understand. But these things build and then they build more quickly, and then they go wide. That's just the way it works. There is no shortcut without some startling event, and startling events create instability. So this direction is what has been chosen or what we are currently capable of. I think it's probably the former. Nonetheless, all of this is good news because this is who's pretending to be president right now. It is noteworthy that the percentage of women who register to vote and cast a ballot is consistently higher than the percentage of the men who do so. End of quote. Repeat the line. Women are not without electoral and or political or, or maybe precise, not and or or political power. That's another of saying that you, the women of America, can determine the outcome of this issue. Did you catch it? So he's trying to claim that what we need to do to fix the abortion problem that the extremist Supreme Court has created is to get all the women out to vote because more women vote than men. So if we get all the women 
to vote over abortion, well, then we'll win. They're basically just going to steal women's votes and then tell everybody that women wanted abortion so bad, even though the polling doesn't reflect that at all. But did you catch what happened about 10 seconds in? Joe Biden, of course, is reading a teleprompter, even though he seems to be in the Oval Office. And I say seems to be simply because I'm not perfectly familiar with every backdrop they film in front of. It looks to me like the Oval Office. I could be wrong. But let's listen again. Let's listen to Joe Biden be just like the anchorman Ron Burgundy. It is noteworthy that the percentage of women who registered to vote and cast a ballot is consistently higher than the percentage of the men who do so. End of quote. Repeat the line. Women are not without electoral and or political or, or maybe precise, not and or or political power. End of quote. Repeat the line. He literally just read his own instructions into the microphone. And we are supposed to believe he is really a president and that the leaders of the world also believe that this guy is president. He can't go meet with Zelensky. Foreign leaders refuse to return his calls. Saudi Arabia didn't even talk to him about oil. When has he talked to Putin about what's happening in Ukraine? How is an American president supposed to represent American power when he can't even get a foreign leader on the phone? The man is a joke. He's an embarrassment to the country on the world stage. In fact, he's an embarrassment to the world stage. And that is, of course, because Joe Biden is not the legitimate president of the United States of America. Now, let's check in on what's happening with Elon Musk and Twitter. Twitter is ready for a potential legal battle with Elon Musk. A headline from this morning in The New York Times. Elon Musk may be preparing for the next chapter in his Twitter takeover journey. Court. A $44 billion deal was reached in April between Mr. Musk and Twitter, and the two sides have since been working to close the deal. Mr. Musk requested information on how many Twitter accounts are bots, and Twitter has provided Mr. Musk access to its fire hose or stream of tweets. It has continued to share additional information with him. On Thursday, the Washington Post reported that the deal was in jeopardy and that Mr. Musk's team was expected to take potentially drastic action. The article's claims, which could not be confirmed by the Deal Book newsletter, took Twitter and its advertisers by surprise because they did not consider the deal to be in any further peril than at any other point in recent months. Mr. Musk did not respond to a request for comment. Twitter reiterated that it intended to close the transaction and enforce the merger agreement at the agreed price and terms. There are many drastic actions Mr. Musk could take, but as it pertains to the deal, there are two clear possibilities. He could deliver a letter to Twitter saying he is terminating the deal and he could sue Twitter. These two actions would most likely but not necessarily happen simultaneously. But there are no clear grounds for Mr. Musk to try to break the deal because Twitter has publicly disclosed that roughly 5% of its users are bots since it went public. But he may try to claim that this disclosure is intentionally misleading, a very high bar to meet legally. Although not a very high bar to meet legally if you have all the data and can prove it. In that case, Twitter could countersue. Twitter strongly believes that the deal contract is on its side and that it would be an uphill battle for Mr. Musk. 
The deal has a specific performance clause, which gives the company the right to sue him and force him to complete the deal so long as the debt financing he has corralled remains intact. And even if that 5% estimate is off, Twitter warns in its regulatory filings that the number is an estimate and that it could be higher than we have currently estimated. The bar for using that as grounds to get out of a deal is high. A case could be heard in Delaware where Twitter is registered. Twitter would almost certainly seek an expedited case given the size of the deal. A possible judge is Chancellor Kathleen St. J. McCormick, who is also overseeing the Orlando Police Pension Fund suit over the deal. Why is the New York Times suggesting which judge is going to handle a Twitter lawsuit that does not yet exist? That should catch your eye. The stakes are high. The most valuable part of Twitter right now is its acquisition agreement with Mr. Musk. Its shares are down about 24% since April and trade well below the price agreed with Mr. Musk. Twitter's stock fell 4% in pre-market trading on Friday. Twitter is seeing pressure on its advertising business, has frozen hiring, and is laying off some staff members. To accept less than the price it originally negotiated with Mr. Musk could expose Twitter to shareholder lawsuits. So while litigation could be costly, losing the deal may be even worse. So that old erratic Elon Musk, he is causing Twitter all sorts of problems. And it's just not fair. It's not fair. They told him it was 5%. They told him it could be higher. He has a very high bar. There's no chance he's going to cross it. Hey, New York Times. Little conversation. When was the last time you got something right? Years ago? Was it ever? Have you ever been right? Or has it just been propaganda the whole time? Ah, yeah, it's just been propaganda the whole time. Okay, got it. Moving on. The Wall Street Journal. Following on what the New York Times just noted at the end, this is from yesterday. Twitter lays off a third of its recruiting team. Twitter Incorporated on Thursday said it laid off 30% of its talent acquisition team as the company deals with increasing business pressures and a potential takeover from Elon Musk. The layoffs come after the company in May announced that it would be pausing hiring and looking to cut costs. As a result of the revised business needs, the company is restructuring and reducing its talent acquisition team. The layoffs are expected to affect fewer than 100 people and are limited to the talent acquisition team, the company said. Now, the talent acquisition team, I assume, is the group of people at Twitter charged with finding top-level engineering talent who might fit into the admittedly communist corporate culture at Twitter. So let's begin expanding into world events. Ben Harnwell was back on War Room updating on the status of Boris Johnson. He initially said that Boris Johnson did not, in fact, resign as prime minister, that he merely resigned as leader of his party. And he will not resign as prime minister until the queen decides that that is what will happen. He also surmised that Boris Johnson could indeed stick around as prime minister even after the election of a new party leader. So we will have to see how that plays out. Dutch farmers are upset with the Dutch government for trying to basically confiscate their land and use it for projects aligned with the World Economic Forum. They are out in protest. The cops are being 
incredibly brutal. They actually took shots at a 16 year old driving a tractor. They did not hit him. Apparently they did hit the tractor, but that is going to be something to watch as well. And that is not, by the way, about COVID restrictions or vaccine mandates like it was in Canada. There is a similar visual aspect to both movements in Canada. It was the truckers gathering in This situation, the Dutch farmers are driving their tractors and blocking off roadways, etc. Italy's Prime Minister Mario Draghi is also under extreme pressure, and there are some hints that he may step down. So we'll keep an eye on that. But let's return to our own fake president on the world stage. This is from the Washington Free Beacon yesterday. Biden sold a million barrels from U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve to China-owned gas giant. The Biden administration sold roughly 1 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to a Chinese state-controlled gas giant that continues to purchase Russian oil, a move the Energy Department said would, quote, support American consumers and combat, quote, Putin's price hike. So that is not what's happening at all. And those are not the motivations. Those are two lies from the fake administration. Biden's Energy Department in April announced the sale of 950,000 strategic petroleum reserve barrels to Unipec, the trading arm of the China Petrochemical Corporation. That company, which is commonly known as Sinopec, is wholly owned by the Chinese government. The Biden administration claimed the move would address the pain Americans are feeling at the pump and help lower energy costs. More than five million barrels of oil released from the U.S. emergency reserves, however, were sent overseas last month. According to a Wednesday Reuters report, at least one shipment of American crude went to China, the report said. The Biden administration also claimed the Unipec sale would support American consumers in the global economy in response to Vladimir Putin's war of choice against Ukraine. Every sentence they release sounds like propaganda. They are trying to include too many aspects of things everybody knows in every single thing they say. They are trying to reinforce the slogans all at the same time over and over and over and over and over again. And they do this because the things they're saying are nonsense and they are not convincing. So they always have to support their statements with the things they believe people are already convinced of. Our strategic petroleum reserve exists in case there is an actual petroleum crisis or shortage in the United States, a supply shortage, or in case the military needs it. It's not to sell to our foreign adversaries, the Chinese Communist Party, in the middle of multiple international crises. And to do that while claiming that what you're doing is bringing down gas prices, that your policies have exploded, or claiming that Putin is responsible for the rise in gas prices, just flat out lies, exposes the fact that they are really doing something that works in direct opposition to the interests of this country and its people. But as the war rages on, Unipec has continued to purchase Russian oil. In May, for example, the company significantly increased the number of hired tankers to ship a key crude from eastern Russia, Bloomberg reported. That decision came roughly one month after Unipec said it would purchase no more Russian oil going forward, once shipments that have arrived in March and due to arrive in April were fulfilled. The White House did not return a request for comment. 
which is unsurprising because Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, when asked, had no idea it was even happening. Its decision to sell barrels from the country's strategic petroleum reserve to a Chinese conglomerate comes as the American public increasingly sours on Biden's energy policies. According to a January Gallup poll, roughly three in four Americans are not satisfied with the federal government's national energy policy, the highest level in roughly two decades. And that was six months ago. Power the Future founder Daniel Turner admonished Biden for selling raw materials to the communist Chinese for them to use as they want. We were assured Biden was releasing this oil to America so it could be refined for gasoline to drive down prices at the pump. So right off the bat, they're just lying to the American people, Turner told the Washington Free Beacon. What they're saying they did and what they did are not remotely related. Turner also said the decision highlights the Biden family's relationship with China. Biden's son, Hunter Biden, is tied to Sinopec. In 2015, a private equity firm he co-founded bought a $1.7 billion stake in Sinopec marketing. Sinopec went on to enter negotiations to purchase Gazprom in March, one month after the Biden administration sanctioned the Russian gas giant. Biden campaigned heavily against the oil and gas industry in 2020, promising to end fossil fuel. He went on to cancel the Keystone XL pipeline and implement a moratorium on new gas leases on federal land during his first month in office. Biden's energy secretary, meanwhile, is working with left wing activists who want to eliminate fossil fuels. And in late October, House Oversight and Reform Committee Democrats pushed top oil executives to produce less gas due to climate change. Gas prices have since soared to record highs. In mid-June, the national average for a gallon of gas surpassed $5 for the first time ever. Still, the White House has assured Americans that they need to pay high gas prices to support the liberal world order. What do you say to those families that say, listen, we can't afford to pay $4.85 a gallon for months, if not years? CNN anchor Victor Blackwell asked Biden economic advisor Brian Deese in late June. This is about the future of the liberal world order, and we have to stand firm, Deese responded. Now, Biden's corruption and compromise to the Chinese Communist Party has been obvious for a long time and was made more obvious when we first began to get hints about what was on the Hunter Biden laptop. Now we are seeing the effects of that corruption and compromise. Joe Biden, to a large degree, is owned and operated by the Chinese Communist Party. We have a corrupt and demented Ron Burgundy representing United States interests around the world. And the same people who tell us that Joe Biden actually got 81 million real legal American votes are the ones who say that Joe Biden is doing a great job. And I say that to note that when you can see quite clearly that Joe Biden is doing a terrible job, that he is corrupt and compromised and demented and not very bright to begin with, then it's natural to believe that the media figures who continue to communicate that Joe Biden is acting expertly on the world stage are the same people at the same organizations that call election fraud the big lie. They're not right just because the narrative is larger and captured more people and still has more people captured. 
these people are wrong and intentionally wrong, which is just dishonesty about the most important events in the world consistently all the time. See what you see. These people are liars. The stories they tell do not map onto reality. They don't even make sense. Now, one more subject, and then I am going to get into the Abe assassination. This is from the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Okay, this is the Russian state making their case. You do not have to believe it. You are welcome to assume that it's propaganda. It is information among other information. But let's hear what they have to say. Excerpts from the Russian Defense Ministry briefing on the results of analyzing documents related to the military biological activity of the USA in Ukraine. One of the key Pentagon contractors, Metabiota, was involved in the response to the Ebola epidemic in West Africa. The special military operation has led to receiving documents that reveal the plans of Metabiota and the Ukrainian Scientific Technological Center to study the Ebola virus in Ukraine. Metabiota is yet another company affiliated with one Hunter Biden. Ukraine and other post-Soviet states have become a testing ground for biological weapons, not only for the USA, but also for its NATO allies. In the first place, Germany. Various projects have been carried out on behalf of the Joint Medical Service of the German Armed Forces. The lack of therapeutic effect of antibacterial medication has been reported during inpatient treatment of AFU servicemen in medical facilities. This fact may indicate preventative use of antibiotics and preparation of personnel for operating in conditions of biological contamination. So huge revelations? No, but more revelations for sure headed in the same direction that they've been headed in the whole time. And let's remember for a second how this narrative has developed. The WHO sent a memo to Ukraine advising their biological laboratories to destroy any pathogens that could be dangerous if they fell into the wrong hands. That is a real thing. Victoria Newland, in her testimony before the Senate, answering Marco Rubio a couple of weeks later, admitted to the existence of those labs, but she said they are not bioweapons labs. They are biosecurity labs. They exist so that we can find the cures to the viruses that we also create in the labs. But she did make it clear that if the pathogens in that lab that the lab is studying fell into the wrong hands, then they could be very dangerous, which means that they already are weapons. And of course, that's what dual use research of concern means. That's what gain of function means. They weaponize the viruses. The dual uses, one of them is supposed to cure diseases. The other use is military. They are trying to claim that bioweapons are apparently in the eye of the beholder. But if you can capture dangerous pathogens and use them as a weapon, then they already are a weapon. So that is, in effect, a bioweapons lab. And of course, we know that they are funded by the DOD and we know some of the research they've done. Russia has exposed a lot of this over the course of the last four and a half months. And if they are to be believed about the documents they have taken to the U.N. 
and that other countries representing over half the world's population have agreed are legitimate, then we're talking about experiments on pathogens specifically designed to affect Slavic people and birds with migratory patterns over Russia that could spread that virus to the Russian people. So unless they were planning on using birds to deliver vaccines, why were they studying the migratory patterns? What is this, Monty Python? <laughs> the, the birds carry out deliveries of vaccines to small Russian villages. <laughs> Where did you get the coconuts? We found them. Found them? In Mercia, the coconut's tropical. What do you mean? Well, this is a temperate zone. The swallow may fly south with the sun, or the house martin or the plover may seek warmer climes in winter. Yet these are not strangers to our land. Are you suggesting coconuts migrate? Not at all. They could be carried. What? A swallow carrying a coconut? It could grip it by the husk. It's not a question of where he grips it. It's a simple question of weight ratios. A five-ounce bird could not carry a one-pound coconut. Well, it doesn't matter. Will you go and tell your master that Arthur from the court of Camelot is here? Listen, in order to maintain airspeed velocity, a swallow needs to beat its wings 43 times every second, right? Please! Am I right? I'm not interested. It could be carried by an African swallow. Oh, yeah, an African swallow may be, but not a European swallow, that's my point. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. That sounds like basically every conversation with liberals these days. But yeah, you don't need a delivery system for deadly pathogens if you're doing biosecurity work. So let's move to the assassination of former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Abe is a Trump ally. In fact, of the foreign leaders, he is one of Trump's closest allies. Narendra Modi of India is one of them as well, and we discussed that yesterday. I have mentioned Abe on this podcast a number of times over the last couple of years because he is a sovereign leader who cares about Japan's sovereignty and national identity and does not want Japan to succumb to the liberal world order. So in trying to discern Abe's importance in the good twin, evil twin paradigm, Abe seems decidedly to be representative of the good twin in Japan. The good twin being concerned with national sovereignty and individual sovereignty and the evil twin trying to institute the one world global communist order. Abe is not aligned with the global communist order. So a video comes out last night around 11 o'clock Eastern time, a high angle from a building security camera showing the aftermath of Shinzo Abe being shot on a street in a Western Japanese town called Nara. Abe was out on the street standing on some kind of small platform, giving a political speech as Japan has an election on Sunday that they intend to still hold. Steve Bannon was discussing this on War Room today. He said it's a fairly common occurrence or it's a traditional practice 
for politicians to go out and speak in the middle of the street that way. And that sort of practice is actually where the phrase get on your soapbox comes from. So he's giving a speech and a 41 year old man walks up behind him and from a distance that they have measured to be about nine feet takes an improvised double barrel shotgun, it seems, and fires off two shots. The first one misses. The noise is enough to draw attention. Abe turns to see what it is. The second shot hits Abe apparently in the back. Abe steps down from the box and then collapses. The shooter stands there and is immediately taken into custody. Now, guns are banned in Japan. In fact, by some estimates, Japan has the strictest gun regulations in the world. But nonetheless, somehow the shooter was able to get very, very close to Abe with no reaction from security until after the deed was done. And he used some sort of homemade device to complete the act. Abe was obviously rushed from the scene, helicoptered to a hospital. They were trying to keep him alive. The initial reports were that his heart had stopped and that they were trying to resuscitate him. And over the course of the next few hours, word came down that he had died. Donald Trump released a couple of statements on Truth Social. The first in the immediate aftermath, he wrote, Absolutely devastating news that former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe of Japan, a truly great man and leader, has been shot and is in very serious condition. He was a true friend of mine, and much more importantly, America. This is a tremendous blow to the wonderful people of Japan who loved and admired him so much. We are all praying for Shinzo and his beautiful family. And then this morning he followed up. Really bad news for the world. Former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is dead. He was assassinated. His killer was captured and will hopefully be dealt with swiftly and harshly. Few people know what a great man and leader Shinzo Abe was, but history will teach them and be kind. He was a unifier like no other, but above all, he was a man who loved and cherished his magnificent country, Japan. Shinzo Abe will be greatly missed. There will never be another like him. And he signed it, President Donald J. Trump. Abe grew up in a prominent political family in Japan multiple members of his family involved in politics at high levels. His grandfather was actually the target of an assassination attempt as well. And here is some more history, this coming from NBC News. Abe was the latest in a family line of big political players. His father served as foreign minister, while his grandfather and great uncle were both prime minister. A mainstay of contemporary Japanese politics, Abe first served as prime minister from 2006 to 2007. At 52, he was the youngest person to hold the office since World War II. He is credited with reviving the LDP, that's the Liberal Democratic Party, which is actually their conservative party, after an election thrashing in 2009, imbuing it with his brand of conservatism. He returned as prime minister in 2012 and served to 2020, when he again resigned, citing health issues. Abe's later years in office were marred by political scandals in his party and accusations that he fumbled the country's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, his popularity waning as a result. Now, considering what we know about the way the media treated the coronavirus and treated the leaders in the world and in this country who did not go along with the media narrative about the coronavirus, 
it's pretty easy to see that they're framing Abe as a man who fumbled the handling of the coronavirus means that he was a person who didn't go along with their plans and they tried to punish him politically for it. That is just a manipulation and nothing else. But that longevity stood out in a country that had five leaders in as many years before his return and is now on its second prime minister since Abe stepped down. Abe fought to revive Japan, which had suffered stagnation since the crash of 1991. His time at the helm of the world's third largest economy was characterized by his Abenomics cocktail of fiscal stimulus, monetary easing and structural reforms. Tobias Harris, author of The Iconoclast, Shinzo Abe and the New Japan, said Abe was just a tremendously powerful and influential figure even after leaving office, with his economic and foreign policies still largely in place. Now let's go to the New York Post. Motive in assassination of former Japan Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, not political. The mainstream media is going to tell us that the assassination of a respected world leader and Trump ally three days before a Japanese election with surely ripple effects that are going to change the world in multiple ways, which I'll get into, was not political. And we're supposed to believe that, apparently. The alleged assassin who shot dead Shinzo Abe on Friday believed the former Japanese prime minister was involved in a quote unquote specific organization and that his grudge wasn't political, police said. So the police have already determined this killer's motivation. The killer, by the way, 41 years old and formerly served in Japan's maritime defense force around 2005. The suspected killer, Tetsuya Yamagami, 41, was tackled to the ground just moments after he allegedly opened fire on the 67-year-old former leader as he delivered a campaign speech in the western region of Nara. In an interview with investigators, Yamagami allegedly admitted to plotting to kill Abe because he thought the ex-prime minister was connected to an organization that he bore a grudge against. Police did not reveal the name of the organization or elaborate on what it believed in, adding it wasn't clear if the group even existed. The alleged assassin's grudge did not appear to be about politics, according to police. Yamagami was calm as he responded to questions during his interview, and investigators are still trying to nail down whether he acted alone, police added. The alleged killer was a Nara resident and had worked at Japan's Maritime Self-Defense Forces for three years, but now appeared to be unemployed, cops said. And the article goes on. So let's get some backdrop on the current political situation in Japan. This is from Reuters, published on July 4th in Japan, but July 3rd in the United States. Japan coalition headed for election win. LDP seen gaining seats. Poll. Japan's ruling coalition is headed for victory in a July 10th upper house election with Prime Minister Fumio Kishida's ruling party likely to extend the number of seats it holds on its own, according to an opinion poll published on Monday. A total of 125 seats are being contested, making 63 a simple majority. Kishida's Liberal Democratic Party is projected to win about 60 seats on its own, up from the 55 seats it currently holds, according to a Nikkei Business Daily poll, which was conducted over the weekend. The Nikkei poll results run counter to recent public opinion surveys, which have shown support for his government slipping. Why? 
due to surging prices and higher fuel costs in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, that is, for all intents and purposes, the exact same claim that we just heard about how Abe's popularity slipped due to his fumbling of the handling of the very deadly pandemic. And in both cases, the cause of the slippage is something that is completely false in the mainstream narrative. The Russia-Ukraine situation in the mainstream narrative has been communicated only as propaganda. There is nothing true about the way the media has treated that story. Same thing as COVID. So the idea that politicians are slipping in their popularity due to these falsely portrayed situations exposes exactly what the media is trying to do saying these things. Abe is not on their side. Kushida is not on their side. And the Liberal Democratic Party is not on their side. They are admitting that the party is ahead. They are claiming that that poll could be totally wrong. And they're saying, oh, well, it's possible that the other side might win. I mean, Kushida and his party are losing in popularity because of the very evil dictator Vladimir Putin. More on the election from Reuters. This was published just yesterday before the assassination. Japan election, what you need to know. A strong showing by Japan's ruling party in upper house elections on Sunday would give Prime Minister Fumio Kishida a firmer grip on the factious party and allow him to emerge from the shadow of a powerful predecessor and define his premiership. The upper house election result will have implications for Kishida's grip on the ruling Liberal Democratic Party and his ability to tackle main policy issues from inflation to nuclear power and defense. The rising cost of living is turning into a thorny election issue as opposition parties peg blame for rising prices on Kashida's policies. Oh, that's weird. I thought it was the Russia-Ukraine situation. Oh, it's the Russia-Ukraine situation and his policies. From the perspective of the global communists, both of those are narrative devices to use against Kashida. Farmer Kiyoharu Hirao has started to add more rice to the mix he gives his cattle to stretch his money further as a plunging yen drives up the cost of imported corn for animal feed. That makes him, along with other farmers facing similar hardship, angry at the LDP that once held an almost unshakable grip on rural Japan. And you've seen the media try to spin similar narratives here vis-a-vis Trump, acting like somehow these sorts of people would get mad at the wrong side in the issue. Oh, they just want change. They're being harmed economically and they're taking it out on the ruling party. As if the people of the world can't figure out who is causing all the harm. Japan's push to restart nuclear reactors shut down after the Fukushima disaster a decade ago could get a tailwind as the governing coalition looks set for gains in the election. And some key facts about that election from Reuters. This published on July 5th. What does the upper house do? The less powerful of parliament's two chambers, the upper house approves legislation, but it can be overridden by the lower chamber in vital matters such as selecting a prime minister. Upper house elections are typically seen as an interim report card on a government's performance. 
the next lower house election must be held by late 2025. Members of the 245-seat upper house serve for six years, with an election for half the seats every three years. A total of 125 seats will be up for grabs on Sunday. That includes a vacant seat that would not normally have been up for election this cycle. After July 10th, the number of upper house seats will be increased by three to 248. Kashida has defined victory as maintaining a simple majority in the chamber, or 125 seats, between the LDP and its Komeito junior coalition partner. As the ruling bloc has a combined 70 seats that are not up for re-election, it needs to win 55 seats, or 44% of those contested on Sunday, to keep control of the chamber and claim victory. The target is seen as doable for Kishida. A survey by public broadcaster NHK recently showed that 35.6% of those polled supported the LDP, far ahead of the largest opposition Constitutional Democratic Party of Japan's 5.8%. Amendments to the U.S.-drafted pacifist constitution, which has never been revised in its 75-year history, require approval by two-thirds of each chamber of parliament and a majority in a referendum. Four parties that are aiming to revise the charter or are open to a revision, the Liberal Democratic Party, their bloc partners, Komeito, the Japan Innovation Party, and the Democratic Party for the People need to gain a combined 82 seats for a two-thirds majority. So the number of seats that the Liberal Democratic Party is able to win on Sunday is a very big deal because their coalition partners might be able to make up the rest of the seats that would give them a large enough majority to change their constitutional relationship with the United States. That is key. In the 2016 upper house election, women accounted for 23.1% of the winners, the highest female representation in percentage terms. If women win 29 seats or more out of the 125 this time, that would be a record. Japan was ranked 120th in the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report last year, running far behind other advanced economies due mainly to limited presence of women in political leadership. The World Economic Forum has decided that Japan does not have enough women in positions of political power. Isn't that so interesting? And thank goodness Reuters is reporting what the WEF's desires are. Voter turnout was 48.8% in the previous upper house election in 2019, the second lowest in post-war Japan. In an NHK poll published on Monday, 48% of those surveyed said they would surely vote, and 11% said they had cast an early vote. Little changed from a similar survey ahead of the 2019 election. Turnout has been particularly low among younger voters in recent elections, in contrast to typically high rates among the elderly, making it hard for the youth to have their voice heard in a rapidly aging society. Now, isn't that interesting? That last part is exactly what the media told us the situation in France was a few months back when Emmanuel Macron was given a new life. Despite all of the protests in France, despite how communist Emmanuel Macron is and the direction he's leading the country and how low his approval numbers were. Remember when Ron Klain, Biden's chief of staff, said it's actually a great thing to see that 
they can win with such low approval numbers. We were told to expect low turnout in both countries. We were told that the younger voters were feeling disenfranchised and that the elderly were going to be the ones to bring Macron back into power. They were the only ones who cared about voting. This is the exact same narrative. These are justifications for why the LDP and their coalition will not get the 82 seats that they would need. It seems to me that that is the goal. Prevent that coalition from getting big enough to change the Japan-U.S. relationship. Now, let's get some background on the U.S.-Japan relationship and specifically their security alliance. Now, I'm going to go to a strange source for this. I'm going to go to the Council on Foreign Relations, okay? Because this will give you a clear view of how the liberal world order sees the relationship with Japan. Forged in the wake of World War II, the U.S.-Japan Security Alliance is important as ever to both countries' interests in Asia. In recent years, a more assertive China, a nuclear-armed North Korea, and other challenges have pushed the alliance to make historic adjustments, including crafting a larger role for Japan's military. Meanwhile, long-running conflicts over issues such as U.S. military bases on Okinawa and cost-sharing continue to rankle the partnership. The Donald Trump administration escalated the dispute over Japan's financial contributions to the alliance, publicly accusing Tokyo of not paying enough to house U.S. troops. But President Joe Biden has so far downplayed tensions in the relationship. How did Japan and the United States become allies? Signed in 1951 alongside the Treaty of San Francisco that formally ended World War II, the U.S.-Japan Mutual Security Treaty was a 10-year renewable agreement that outlined how Japan, in light of its pacifist constitution, would allow U.S. forces to remain on its soil after Japan regained sovereignty. This early pact dovetailed with the Yoshida Doctrine, a post-war strategy crafted by Prime Minister Shigeru Yoshida that saw Japan rely on the United States for its security needs so the country could focus on rebuilding its economy. At the time, the United States was keen on using the alliance to bolster its strategic presence in East Asia. It faced a divided Korean peninsula in the wake of the Korean War and a Cold War climate in which the Chinese and Soviet militaries were expanding their breadth and capabilities. Against this security backdrop, Yoshida's government created the Self-Defense Force. In 1954, despite strong domestic objections based on Article 9 of the post-war constitution, which eschews the maintenance of military forces or the use of those forces to settle international disputes. In 1960, the U.S.-Japan agreement was revised, granting the United States the right to establish bases on the archipelago in exchange for a commitment to defend Japan in the event of an attack. Very, very key. A commitment from the U.S. to defend Japan in the event of an attack. The bases gave the U.S. military its first permanent foothold in Asia. Years later, the United States sparked protest in Japan by using the bases to support combat operations during the Vietnam War. In 1967, Prime Minister Eisaku Sato established the three non-nuclear principles, no possession, production, or introduction, in part to allay concerns that the nuclear arms on U.S. bases in Japan would expose the country to attacks. Since then, Japan has relied on the U.S. nuclear umbrella to deter potential aggressors. How has the alliance changed? 
In the 1970s, as the United States withdrew from Vietnam, Japan began to carve out a larger role within the alliance. It issued its first post-war defense strategy and began clarifying how it would partner with the U.S. military. The two allies undertook studies on interoperability and launched joint training and exercises. The 1991 Gulf War spurred debate in Japan about whether its constitution allowed the SDF, the Self-Defense Force, to join the U.S.-led coalition to expel Iraq from Kuwait, a force that had been authorized by the U.N. Security Council. Ultimately, Japan contributed funds but did not send troops. Japanese military officers and government officials later said they were humiliated by their lack of participation in the war and resolved to change the country's pacifist constitution. In 1992, a new law stipulated the conditions for SDF employment in UN peacekeeping operations, and the following year, the first SDF unit was sent abroad to Cambodia. Everyone should always react with horror whenever you hear the phrase UN peacekeeping operations. The fall of the Soviet Union prompted the Allies to adopt new guidelines in 1997 that expanded where Japan's military could operate from its home islands to surrounding areas. Some perceived the move as Japan taking greater responsibility for its own defense. The early 2000s marked a period of increased defense cooperation. In November 2001, the government of Junichiro Koizumi dispatched the Maritime Self-Defense Force to the Indian Ocean to provide logistical support for U.S. military operations in Afghanistan marking Japan's first overseas military action during a combat operation. In 2003, it sent forces to aid in Iraq's post-war reconstruction efforts. In 2015, under Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, Japan reinterpreted its constitution in a historic move that allowed its military to defend allies for the first time, but under limited circumstances. The change helped pave the way for the United States and Japan to revise their defense guidelines once again, expanding the scope of their military cooperation and focusing the alliance on current threats, including from China and North Korea and new technologies. Since then, the countries have continued to deepen their defense cooperation. Abe's successors, Yoshihide Suga and Fumio Kishida, who are also members of the Liberal Democratic Party, have mostly shared Abe's foreign policy outlook, viewing China's increasing power with concern and supporting increased defense spending. The United States and Japan have worked closely on developing ballistic missile technology, with the 2019 U.S. Department of Defense Missile Defense Review describing Japan as one of the United States' strongest missile defense partners. In 2020, the United States approved the sale of 105 F-35 fighters to Japan. Meanwhile, Japan has committed to working with the United States to improve space, cyber, and maritime awareness capabilities and deepen science and tech cooperation, focusing on defense applications of unmanned systems and artificial intelligence. The alliance has also extended to addressing non-military threats, including climate change. In April 2021, President Biden and Prime Minister Suga and that is the prime minister who followed Abe, but is not the current prime minister. He did not last long at all. So Biden and Prime Minister Suga announced a climate partnership, agreeing to boost cooperation on green technologies and coordinate on promoting decarbonized infrastructure and capacity building in developing countries in the Indo-Pacific. Experts say 
that the partnership in part spurred Japan's announcement that same month of a more ambitious emissions reduction commitment. How does North Korea factor into the alliance? The threat from North Korea, which Japan has called grave and eminent, became a major focus in the alliance dating back to the mid-1990s when North Korea fired a ballistic missile into the Sea of Japan and withdrew from the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. The alliance's 1997 framework intended to, among other things, improve Japan's preparations for a crisis on the Korean Peninsula. Tokyo and Washington started working more closely on missile defense after North Korea fired another missile over Japan in 1998. Since then, North Korea has launched dozens of missiles over Japan and claims it can mass produce medium range missiles. The intensifying threat has led some in Japan to push for acquiring nuclear weapons for self-defense and missiles for preemptive strikes. Tokyo's willingness to pursue diplomacy with Pyongyang has been complicated for years by a lingering controversy. Japan claims that North Korea abducted 17 Japanese citizens in the 1970s, five of whom were eventually returned to Japan, while the others are still missing. Japanese leaders had long refused talks with North Korea until the issue was resolved. Abe and Suga both expressed willingness to meet with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, though neither ever did. But of course, Abe's friend and ally Donald J. Trump did exactly that. The Trump administration's efforts to engage Kim in direct diplomacy sparked fears in Tokyo that Japan's interests would be disregarded in any deal. But by 2021, talks on North Korea's denuclearization had stalled, with North Korea restarting its nuclear reactor program and resuming missile testing. Rejecting Trump's unilateral approach, the Biden administration has said it will work in lockstep with Japan and South Korea to revive dialogue with North Korea. So let's go back to that first sentence. Does it make any sense? This is the Council on Foreign Relations speaking. The Trump administration's efforts to engage Kim in direct diplomacy sparked fears in Tokyo that Japan's interests would be disregarded in any deal. So what are the fears in Tokyo? Whose fears are they? Are they Abe's fears? Did Abe fear that his friend and ally, President Donald J. Trump, would disregard Japan's interests when he met with Kim Jong-un. Does that make sense? I would suggest it does not. How have the allies grappled with China? Since the 1996 Taiwan Strait crisis, during which the United States sent aircraft carriers to the region in response to Chinese missile tests, China's rapid rise has been a top concern for the alliance. In 2010, it surpassed Japan as the world's second largest economy and its growing defense budget and military modernization have prompted worries about its global ambitions. At the heart of tensions between China and Japan is a long-standing territorial dispute over the Senkaku Daoyu Islands, and I hope I'm saying all of this correctly, a cluster of uninhabited islets in the East China Sea. Washington has maintained a neutral stance on the island's sovereignty. However, since the Obama administration, the United States has considered the islands to be administered by Japan and thus covered by the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty. Intermittent diplomatic flare-ups, including in 2013 when China announced the creation of an air defense identification zone over the contested islands, have led many observers to fear a military clash, especially one that could draw in the United States. 
In response to China's increased assertiveness, recent U.S. administrations have shifted strategic focus to the Indo-Pacific, beginning with Obama's 2011 pivot to Asia, which sought to strengthen military and economic ties with partners in the region, including Japan. The Trump administration revived the Quad, a security arrangement among the United States, Australia, India, and Japan over concerns about China's behavior. Biden further committed to the Quad, convening meetings during which his fellow leaders agreed to expand cooperation on vaccines, climate change, technology, and supply chain resilience. And all of those are going so well. Despite the importance of Japan's close economic ties with China, Tokyo remains concerned about China's military rise and has in recent years angered Beijing by voicing concerns over Chinese maritime actions, human rights in Hong Kong and Xinjiang, and stability in the Taiwan Strait. Taiwan in particular has become increasingly relevant, with Japan's 2021 defense strategy emphasizing for the first time the importance of maintaining stability across the Taiwan Strait for Japan's security. Biden and Suga released a joint statement expressing concern over Chinese behavior toward Taiwan and Japanese defense officials have called for Japan to defend Taiwan in the event of war. In March 2021, the U.S. defense secretary and Japan's defense minister agreed that Washington and Tokyo would cooperate closely in any such conflict. And that is the conflict that is next up on the world stage. I have suggested for months and months that I believe we will see a nearly exact replay of the Ukraine-Russia narrative regarding China and Taiwan. This is from Breitbart today. Shinzo Abe spent his last days advocating for defending Taiwan from a belligerent China. Former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe spent much of his public effort in the months leading up to his assassination on Friday advocating for defending the nation of Taiwan from potential Chinese invasion, outraging the Communist Party into threatening a bloodbath if he did not stop. Abe served as Prime Minister for a year in 2006 and again from 2012 to 2020, making him the country's longest serving leader in that role. He resigned in 2020, citing a longtime struggle with ulcerative colitis that had also curtailed his first term in office, but he remained a prominent figure in Japanese and international politics in the two years following his second resignation. Abe died on Friday after an assassin identified as Yamagami Tetsuya shot him twice with what reports currently indicate appeared to be a homemade firearm. Japanese media report that Yamagami confessed to the crime but claimed not to have a political grudge against the former prime minister. And an update on the unknown group that this assassin believed Abe was a part of and had a grudge against may well be Nippon Kaiji, the Japan conference, according to reporting from Vanessa Bealey, who has done amazing work on Russia, Ukraine. And she calls it an ultra-nationalist organization. She adds that Abe was considered a right-wing populist and ultra-conservative within the LDP. His aggressive nationalist policies as prime minister were criticized by opposing forces as reactionary or fascist. And who else do they call reactionary and fascist? Every sovereign national leader. 
most especially Donald J. Trump. But back to Breitbart. Abe was the longtime leader of the conservative liberal Democratic Party, which has for years advocated for Japan to elevate its status as a defense power, including potentially establishing a proper military. Japan does not have armed forces, only self-defense forces in light of its post-World War II constitution. As part of his advocacy for Japan to elevate itself as a defense heavyweight, Abe had grown increasingly vocal in insisting that China invading neighboring Taiwan a sovereign country that China insists falsely is a rogue province under Beijing would be an emergency for Japan. Now let us pause once again to compare this to Russia and Ukraine. Crimea, who we are told Russia seized, they annexed Crimea. Crimea in 2014 declared their independence, just like the regions in the Donbass, Donetsk and Lugansk. The regions Russia says it is currently liberating in defense of those regions against the forces of the comedic actor and the neo-Nazis who have been waging an ethnic civil war in that region since 2014. These independent republics are part of the former Soviet Union, but Russia considers them to be at least ostensibly their own independent republics, a.k.a not part of Ukraine. And similarly with China, China does not consider Hong Kong a separate country. They do not consider Taiwan a separate country. So whether they are or not is to some extent a matter of perspective. China is not required to agree with CNN. Just like Vladimir Putin does not care at all whether or not the Western media says all of these Republics on Ukraine's eastern border with Russia are part of Ukraine or not. Under communist dictator Xi Jinping, China has grown increasingly belligerent on the issue of Taiwan, repeatedly threatening an invasion. Xi himself promised in a 2019 speech that anyone supporting Taiwan as a sovereign state would have their bones ground to powder. Abe first appeared to return to political prominence in 2021 after some time in private life following his resignation. Reports in November indicated the former prime minister was planning to visit Taiwan to show support in person. A month later, Abe publicly affirmed a Taiwan emergency is a Japanese emergency, a mantra he would repeat often for what ended up being the rest of his life. The Chinese foreign ministry responded by promising a bloodbath. Anyone who dares to return to the old path of militarism and defy the limits of the Chinese people will face a bloodbath. Foreign ministry spokesman. Wang Wenbin warned in December. The foreign ministry's official English language transcript of Wang's remarks omitted the word bloodbath, instead translating his warning as those who dare to pursue the old path of militarism and challenge our bottom line will find themselves on a collision course with the Chinese people. Abe did not heed the warning. The former government held a video conversation with Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen in March repeating the call for the world to defend the island democracy. Last year at a seminar held by a Taiwan think tank, I said that if Taiwan has a problem, then Japan has a problem. And the Japan-U.S. alliance also has a problem, Abe told Tsai. Of course, this was a way of expressing my own sense of urgency, and I myself advocated for the concept of a free and open Indo-Pacific. 
The vast Indo-Pacific Ocean, where Taiwan and Japan are located, must be an ocean in which we can maintain freedom and openness. Abe asserted in a column published in April that Russia's expansion of its eight-year-old invasion of Ukraine two months prior should be a call for the United States to abandon its policy of strategic ambiguity with Taiwan. The policy consists of Washington not formally recognizing Taiwan as a state or engaging in any military pacts with it, but selling Taiwan weapons and hinting that it would support the island nation in the event of a Chinese invasion. Neither China nor Taiwan have any certainty regarding how America would act in the event of a Chinese attack. And that is a result of a number of factors, not least of which are Joe Biden's illegitimacy and Joe Biden's complete and total compromise by the Chinese Communist Party. Given the change in circumstances since the policy of strategic ambiguity was adopted, The U.S. should issue a statement that is not open to misinterpretation or multiple interpretations, Abe wrote in April. The time has come for the U.S. to make clear that it will defend Taiwan against any attempted Chinese invasion. Joe Biden is not capable of doing that. The human tragedy that has befallen Ukraine has taught us a bitter lesson. There must no longer be any room for doubt in our resolve concerning Taiwan, Abe concluded and in our determination to defend freedom, democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. The Chinese foreign ministry responded to the column at the time through a statement by, bizarrely, China's ambassador to Liberia, Ren Yisheng. The Taiwan question is purely China's own affair and none of Japan's business, Ren wrote. It is dangerous and futile for some people in Japan to mention Taiwan and Ukraine in the same breath and incite breakthroughs in relations with Taiwan. Nearly a month before his death, Abe again defied China's warnings, issuing remarks in the Axios Outlook Symposium encouraging Western countries, especially America, to create a situation in which China will relinquish its goal of militarily taking over Taiwan. Taiwan News paraphrased. We must not underestimate China's efforts. Any infringement on Taiwan is an infringement on Japan, Abe repeated. So let's step back and look at all of this through a good twin, evil twin paradigm. The United States. Donald Trump is the sovereign nationalist leader. His supporters support that cause. And then we have the American evil twin that we call the deep state, the uniparty the Democrat Communist Party, members of the Republican Party, all working together to secure the liberal world order, as told by Joe Biden's economic advisor, Brian Deese. The liberal world order is the global communist order. They are one and the same, but they can't go around calling it communist, so they call it liberal. The key point is the fact that they are striving for a world order. So in the good twin, evil twin paradigm, you have Donald Trump on the sovereign and nationalist side with his supporters. You have the deep state and the uniparty and the richest, dumbest and most privileged people in the country aligning with them. In Russia, you have the Russian people who at extraordinary rates support Vladimir Putin. So you have the people siding with the sovereign nationalist Putin. And we can 
see them aligned against the global communist order. They are no fans of the American deep state, the European Union, NATO and its allies, and the global communist order that is running all of those entities. So the question becomes, what does that look like for China? Do we need to separate in our minds the idea of China and the idea of the Chinese Communist Party? Are these two separate things? She is the leader. The Chinese Communist Party governs China. But does that mean that she himself is a global communist? That is the critical question. Now, after the Afghanistan debacle brought to you by the fake president and the television generals, none other than George Soros himself called Xi Jinping the world's greatest threat to our democracy. Now, Soros could be lying or playing leverage games, but he has repeated this notion multiple times. He has talked about the dangers of Xi Jinping as a leader, and we have seen the mainstream media over the last few months try to knock Xi Jinping down a few pegs after not saying anything bad about the Chinese Communist Party for years and years and years. The American media, by and large, doesn't care that there are two million Muslim Uyghurs in concentration camps in Xinjiang. They covered for the CCP in regards to the situation in Hong Kong and the protests there. You can remember the former Houston Rockets general manager, Daryl Morey, speaking up for the people of Hong Kong and then being shouted down by the NBA. No, 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 you can't say that. We can't make the CCP mad. There has been virtually no pushback against the CCP. And then all of a sudden we begin seeing that Xi Jinping is the bad guy, according to the global communist order and the global propaganda state media that supports it including an article I shared on here about how she may not remain in power past this fall after he has bungled the COVID response, blaming she for the widespread lockdowns across China and the CCP's zero COVID policy. So is Xi Jinping the wild card that I believe and others believe he might be? I'm not sure. I'm not convinced. I'm saying I've got my eyes open. This is something I think about. You have to pass this information through the good twin, evil twin paradigm in multiple directions. Can you make, for instance, an argument that Shinzo Abe represents the evil twin that aligns with the global communist order? I think that's a pretty hard argument to make, especially as one of Trump's closest allies and an ultra nationalist who is concerned with Japan's sovereignty and Japan's own self-defense without the U.S. being involved. It's an awfully hard argument to make that Abe is aligned with the global communist order. That is a much easier argument to make when it comes to Xi Jinping. There are plenty of indications that she is either aligned now with the global communist order in some way or was aligned with the global communist order in some way earlier. And I want to be clear that being aligned against the global communist order in some ways does not necessarily make you a good guy. I've never tried to argue that Vladimir Putin is a good guy, but I'm happy to argue that in the Russia Ukraine situation, the West is the aggressor. The West is producing rampant propaganda and trying to convince the world of absolute falsehoods. When it comes to Ukraine and Russia, the Western media is defending Nazis in Ukraine, biolabs in Ukraine, 
the expertise and celebrity and bravery of the comedic actor Volodymyr Zelensky in Ukraine, the fact that the United States overthrew the Ukrainian government multiple times in the last 20 years and installed leaders who align with the global communist order, and they intentionally misdirect people about the ethnic civil war that has been waged in eastern Ukraine since 2014. So we are going to have to see how this plays out. And part of the way we are going to determine that is by keeping an eye on the mainstream media and how they are framing the China and Taiwan situation and how they are framing this assassination and the elections upcoming on Sunday. A whole lot of puzzle pieces are beginning to get dropped on the table, and we don't know exactly where they go, but they all fit somehow, at least aside from the obvious misinformation and misdirection that we can always expect. Now, some of the reactions we've gotten so far from members of the Democrat Communist Party are like Joe Biden's reaction, where he expressed sadness and sympathy, but also said, while there are many details that we do not yet know, we know that violent attacks are never acceptable and that gun violence always leaves a deep scar on the communities that are affected by it. What in the world does that mean? Japan has banned guns. This guy was literally making pipe guns at his house. There's no gun laws in the world that are going to solve that problem. Shinzo Abe had security all around him, and that didn't help either. But hey, it's only the death of a foreign leader. If you can't use that to try to eradicate the Second Amendment, really, what can you use? Adam Schiff tweeted, deeply saddened by the assassination of former Prime Minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe. Political violence is a threat that's on the rise everywhere. What? Adam Schiff and the Democrat Communist Party are exclusively responsible for the political violence in the United States. And let's remember that we are told these mass shootings happening in the U.S. are not political violence. These are Lone gunmen, young boys who went a little crazy. It's because we have too many guns. Well, the only party that is exploiting these incidents as political is, again, the Democrat Communist Party, because their effort is to try to disarm the American people and eradicate the Second Amendment. Where else is political violence of this scale on the rise? Well, nowhere. Except where and when it is caused by the efforts of the global communist order. They are responsible for funding separatist uprisings in the United States, BLM and Antifa, and in all the other countries where they run color revolutions and steal elections like Myanmar or Burkina Faso. We can always take hints about what the underlying reality of the situation is by seeing what the media and the communists are trying to do with the situation. Where are they trying to steer the narrative? What are they trying to accomplish? And this becomes a complicated situation for the United States. If China goes into Taiwan and Japan somehow reacts, or we are told that China has attacked Japan, well, then the U.S. is supposed to come to Japan's defense. And that, my friends, will be their effort to 
scare the American population into supporting military efforts by the fake president in defending Japan. And we should prepare to see Taiwanese flags and Japanese flags as people's avatars on Instagram. Maybe they'll figure out a way to combine them. They will eventually get really confused about who they're able to call racist. And we'll see. That'll be very entertaining. But the question will become, how are they going to drive support for Biden's military action in this situation in any way? Now, I don't believe the American public is going to support that at all. But there are a lot of moves to play out in this situation. And this assassination could be the shot heard round the world scenario. The entire world can be focused on one situation and everybody has a reaction. I imagine the reaction from the warmongers and neocons and uniparty communists will be that the U.S. must engage militarily with China to defend Japan and Taiwan. And we will see an effort to make this the new Afghanistan and the new Ukraine. It remains to be seen. Could I be wrong? Of course I could be wrong. This is an incredibly complex and complicated situation. My goal is to tell you what we should be looking for, because we know we're about to be lied to on a massive scale. And if we can figure out where the lies will be and what the lies will be, before the lies are told, that will make it easier for us to knock all of that down and eradicate the power of the Uniparty and the global communist order and the propaganda state media globally as they drive the narrative for American military involvement in Asia. Just as we don't want civil war in the United States, we also don't want World War Three. And the American evil twin faction that pretends to be in power in the United States wants both of those. That is what we must always guard against. I will be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. 
and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!